Hello and welcome to She Said, She Said. We are delighted to welcome Nina Easton here with us today. Nina may be best known for her accomplished career in journalism at the Boston Globe, the LA Times, Business Week, the Legal Times, Fortune, I've probably left out one or two. She's also the best-selling, a best-selling author. One of her books, in fact, The Gang of Five, remains on Vox's list of books to read to understand the world, which is really incredible. Nina chairs Fortune Magazine's Most Powerful Women International, and she co-chairs the Fortune Global Forum. Both of these live events bring together the world's most powerful leaders from across industry sectors. Now, most recently, Nina has shifted gears into a more entrepreneurial venture. We're going to talk about all of this and much, much more. But without further ado, Nina, welcome. We're so delighted to have you. Laura, it's so fabulous to be here. I talked to you when you were just thinking about doing this podcast, and it is so exciting to see it come to fruition and to be something that's incredibly compelling and impactful. So I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. it's great to be here. Thank you very much. Much. I, I should admit, despite the fact that we're friends and you're a great supporter, it is a bit angst-inducing to be interviewing the world-class interviewer. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll learn much from you. <laughs> you're very kind. You have been very, very kind. Um, you have had an amazing career in journalism, as I mentioned earlier, and it's allowed you to spend quality time with the best and the brightest, the most famous, most successful people that any of us could name in the world. What have you learned from these people, from this experience with Fortune and elsewhere? Well, I've learned um, a couple of things. One, I started my journalism career, particularly with the LA Times Sunday Magazine, and then following up with a book I wrote on the rise of the conservative movement and at the Boston Globe and again at Fortune, um, I, I really tried to defy conventional wisdom. And I sought out figures, whether it was in politics or economics, that reflected a view that wasn't necessarily being heard uh, in the mainstream media, so to speak. So I, I think it's important. Um, what I've learned is there's great stories and great points of view that aren't sitting right in front of you. Um, I've learned about leadership and great leadership, particularly through the Fortune events, which are Fortune 500 CEOs and and other and great entrepreneurs. I've learned that um, success and particularly in business and in building things isn't a straight line. It's a zigzag. And great leaders, as my partner Patty Sellers likes to say, great leaders weren't born that way. They faced headwinds. They faced doubts. They faced difficult times. And these are the great stories. These are what makes a great person, that it's just not linear. You have the benefit of talking with both women and men leaders um, from around the world. Do you see differences in leadership qualities? Are there things that women do differently than men? Or at that level, is it kind of all the same? Women face very different things, of course. Women face raising a family while moving up the corporate ladder, for example. Um, Indra Nui, the CEO of PepsiCo, has said to me a couple times, she has a daughter who never forgave her for never being home while she was doing this, her grown daughter. Uh, it's It's a difficult journey. It's more difficult for a woman. I know it was more difficult for me. Um, coping with a family while um, building a career. So I think 
I think you have to start from the premise and the reality that we have, we face different um, obstacles along the way, not to mention the obstacles that you might face just inside any institution that is, tends to be dominated by men at the top. So there's a lot of effort and attention that's going into increasing the number of women at the top. You talk to CEOs every day who are doubling down on efforts to increase the number of women that are at the top, increasing diversity across the board. And yet still we're at about 20% in terms of the number of women in the U.S. Congress. And it's even lower than that when you look across the C-suite, whether it's corporate boards or CEO positions or CFO positions, essentially the positions that ultimately would become corporate board positions. Those numbers are still really low. What's not happening? What's not working? Well, what they're finding is is there's a pyramid. So at the bottom of that pyramid of any organization, it tends that leaving aside Congress, of course, but in in a company, it tends to be 50 50, 60, it might be 60 40 women, men. Um, but as you rise up that pyramid, that's when you start losing women. And the challenge that companies have faced is that women get into that middle management position and they either, for a couple of reasons, they, they take a track that doesn't get them to the C-suite because of demands of family, for example. They might um, not want that track that takes them to the C-suite. Um, there is also not necessarily a, a, a Men, enough mentorship coming from the top. Now, companies are very focused on trying to prevent. Companies are very focused on trying to um, create that mentorship to get more women up in leadership positions. But Laura, you've been inside a major company. I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Everybody has a different view of why women um, kind of start falling out of the leadership ranks mm-hmm. as you get to the top. They're very conscious of this. I think most um, big companies are conscious of this. Well, there's a lot of companies like below that very top um, with less broad-minded uh, leadership that don't even think about it. They've got, you know, they're they've got a C-suite full of men, and it doesn't bother them. But yeah. but I think uh, generally, um, the the more enlightened Fortune 500 C-suite executives are conscious of it. Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. your view? Uh, clearly, every organization is a little bit different, but. You know, I think there's a lot of different elements that go into why women leave. The work environment, as you just said, the demands of family. And, and it's not just having women having children, but it's also caring for older parents. There's a lot of life circumstances that sometimes big corporate jobs and those big C-suite level jobs are, have been historically much less forgiving. And, but still, I, I do see a lot of more, an increase in open-mindedness as it relates to um, being more accommodating, uh, being more aware of the fact that these are life circumstances. And if you don't try to make accommodations for that, you're going to lose people. They're going to make other choices. Part of the reason why, you know, I felt strongly, you know this, the uh, felt strongly about creating a podcast like this was to showcase different models of leadership. 
that sometimes we look at leadership and you sort of look at it from one dimension and not from all the different, all the other dimensions in which women are leading and serving as role models in ways that we may not immediately appreciate. And it's interesting, Laura, that you mentioned those lifestyle choices and demands. It's it's interesting that you're hearing from companies that millennials, the great, the talented millennials that they want to recruit, actually have a lot of the same desires that women do. They want more balance in their life. And, um, you know, as we know, a more balanced life often leads to more balanced decision making. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Nina, you have the benefit of being able to look at leadership from a global basis as well. What difference do you see in women's leadership around the world when you talk to women leaders who are not in the United States? Are there big differences? Well, I think... Um, there, for, for one thing, one thing that we find is that the women in the top ranks of the private sector are more prevalent in the United States than in Europe, for example, where, but women in Europe tend to be more in the top ranks of the political system. So it's, uh, um, and, and in China, for example, you see a lot of women entrepreneurs, uh, self-made entrepreneurs. So it's, it, people, women are finding their place in different different ways they're finding different routes around the world but it's interesting Laura how many things are similar so I just got back from Saudi Arabia doing a a project for our company and women in Saudi Arabia of course it's very different from anything you could ever imagine being coming from the United States but coping with men and getting men to take you seriously is something that they're facing as they start integrating because now there's more gender integration there they are facing that in the same way that we face it in our own daily life it's very the stories are so similar so a woman walks into a room full of men and decision makers and she's a legitimate decision maker it's she's facing that difficulty of being taken seriously and I think back to an interview I did with Christine Lagarde, mm-hmm. who's the managing director of the IMF, fabulous woman. And she talks about how when women come out to speak in a meeting or stand up to speak, invariably men take out their Blackberries or their iPhones and start doing email. Right? She hates that. And I said to her, so what do you do when that happens? Has that ever happened to you? And she said, yeah, um, once I started speaking in a different language, she switched to French. (laughs) Another time she just paused. And another time she started singing. But um, this question of getting taken seriously by the men in in your work environment, in a decision-making environment, that's something that is, I think, global. I mean, we saw that even during the Obama White House years. There were women early on who were saying, we're not included in decisions. We're not sitting at the table. And that was considered, you know, a big progressive, diverse White House. So I think it's it's everywhere. So interesting. So I know you've just returned from Saudi Arabia, as you just said, and really interesting development where women for the first time are are going to be able to drive legally as of this summer. And you had a chance to talk to some of these women. What was that like and how how does that impact their role in society from the standpoint of leadership? Well, a lot of it, you have to keep in mind, is cultural. So there's great fear um, culturally about women driving. Why? And there's surveys that have been done on this. 
families fear that these women driving will be sexually harassed or bothered by other men if they get too much independent, which which is incredibly um, ironic since they're now being driven by male foreigners. <laughs> so they've never quite, uh, they haven't quite caught on to the, the irony of that. But, um, but I think it's the driving thing, people have focused on that, but the changes, and it's big, and they will be driving in June, but the changes that are happening at a, at a at levels that you don't really see are what we really have to be paying attention to. Like what? For example, workplaces. It used to be not very long ago that you had to have segregated work, gender segregated workplaces. You would have to walk in a separate entrance, work in a separate office. Even Western companies had to build a separate office and facility for women workers because they weren't allowed to mix with men. That's changing um, dramatically. And now there's people, men and women meet together in meetings. I sat in one meeting where it was very Western. I mean, you would, everybody was speaking English. You wouldn't have known that you're in a different, different country even. Um, but then they go back, then women go back to their kind of respective offices where those offices are separate from the men's. There's still a sort of sense that it is too uncomfortable for men and women to have offices side by side, but it's okay for them to meet together. So that's sort of where they are now. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's happened. There was a soccer game, meaning a football game, uh, uh, not long ago where women were allowed for the first time and were able to sit with men. Uh, there's concerts now. There weren't concerts before, so men and women can participate in concerts together. And all of this is coming from, while there have been changes at the at the grassroots level, and women have been pushing these uh, issues for years, and I ta- spoke to a lot of women who were at the forefront of that. But what's happening now is it's, it's top down. The crown prince, who's known as MBS, uh, has set forth what he calls uh, Vision 2030, and the idea is that Saudi has to be diversified away from oil. Oil prices dropping. Uh, it's hurt the economy. They know they need to diversify. So they're putting, they're, and they need to diversify and bring more work and, and income to Saudi families. Um, so they're putting a lot of money into entertainment, for example. Um, they're putting a lot of money into infrastructure. They're building a city where there's going to be more robots than there are people Mm. so they're looking at doing innovation and women are actually benefiting from that and he has actually talked about the crown prince has talked about the fact that women in islam were were there's history of them being powerful um the prophet's first wife was a was a very powerful entrepreneur a trader and he talks about that openly so the fact that he has said that is okay that has, that has sort of muted the hardcore conservative religious voices for now. I mean, you could, you never know. Things can always there could always be a backlash, but the level of resources and money and attention going into this um, this vision twenty thirty to move the economy in that direction suggests that these changes are probably here to stay. This is my bet that they're going to continue. Mm-hmm. What about the impact on the broader Middle East? All of that is so fascinating. Um, well, Saudi Arabia is actually the most conservative of any Middle Eastern country, particularly like women driving. 
I believe it's the only country that banned women from driving. So that's symbolic of that. So it's, but I think in the broader Middle East, um, these are still culturally conservative countries. And I, I don't, you're not, they're not going to be westernized. They're going to be modernized, but they're not going to be westernized. And I don't think anybody should be looking for that. Um, I don't think uh, in Saudi Arabia, for example, you're not going to see women suddenly stop wearing the abaya. They're going to wear colorful abayas, but they're not going to stop wearing that. There's a, um, you're not going to see a sudden change in arranged marriages, for example. There's something like 70% of marriages are arranged and where you meet, you meet your fiancé once and then you meet him again when you get married. And the fiancé is chosen by the, the parents. And that's widely accepted. And that's, people don't question that. Uh, it leads to a very high divorce rate, by the way. Uh, it, it's not a system that works really well. But it's not, I don't think those kinds of cultural uh, tendencies will shift. And again, this is cultural as much as, as um, you know, laws or policies stopping them. It's very cultural that it's, it's very important for women to get married, uh, to, get, to have children. However, women are getting educated. Here's a little known fact that 60% of the college graduates in Saudi Arabia are women. And most of the graduate degrees are women. So you have these highly educated women with no place to go to work, or you did. Now that's changing. A lot of uh, the, the late king, who died a couple of years ago, um, made sure that tens of thousands of Saudis were going, including women, were going overseas to colleges and places like the United States. So they come back and, yeah, they have children, but they also they want to contribute. They want to have impact. So it's it's a period of great transition there. It's a fascinating place and so many great stories of women that haven't been told. Yeah. So that really leads me to um, what you're doing now. I mean, storytelling is something that you obviously do very well. Uh, this is a great example of that. Um, talk to me about, you made a big transition, what, a year and a half ago, mm -hmm. right? Almost two years Almost ago. Almost two, two years ago. Two years. Yeah. And have created this partnership with your former or current and former fortune colleague, Patty Sellers. Yes. You've started this company together, Sellers Eastern, Eastern Media. What is Sellers Eastern Media? What are you guys trying to do? So we're a private storytelling company. We are taking our long-time journalistic skills, whether it's interviewing, narrating, uh, being on stage, filming legacy films and, and videos and so forth. We're taking those skills to private clients. We believe that there are so many great stories out there of impact makers. So people who are that have great impact and you don't this we're in this digital age you don't need traditional media to tell your story anymore so we started this company it's actually two years ago it's march so it's two, exactly two years ago we, we launched with a lovely story in fortune magazine that um, touted what we were doing the the reason we did it was twofold one is that we had been around all these great women entrepreneurs for so long through the fortune events. It kind of rubbed off on us. It was like osmosis. It gets in you. Like, we can do that. We can build a company. And, and then secondly is that we both, when you kind of drill down at our age, 
It's like, what do you love to do? I love interviewing. I love telling people's stories. I like, I love communicating it. And I'm a pretty good writer, and which translates into when you're a pretty, good, you know, a good writer, that also translates into being able to um, create, produce films. So we work with filmmakers to create legacy films on people, on leadership at companies, on people within companies, on um, philanthropies, on we've got one legacy project going with a head of a state, <laughs> country. Um, we've got, uh, you know, also a range of really exciting clients. And I have to say, I, it, I turned 60 this year. I'm having more fun and more impact than I've had in my entire 40-year media career. I'm, I encourage everybody, and I know you're going to ask me this question, so I'm going to jump in, like, with the best advice you ever got. So um, one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got from these great women, like Ginny Rometty, the CEO, is get out of your comfort zone. If you are ever in a job where you're comfortable, move on. And I think it was scary for us to leave what we were so what we've been doing for 35 40 years depending on how you count it i was i was editor of the daily cal at berkeley so it you know that goes way back to the late 70s and um we got out of our comfort zone and we are took a big leap and a big kind of a big risk and we're loving it that's amazing that's so amazing. I mean, transitions can be really challenging. And knowing whether you're making the right move can be hard. Yeah. So you've had a long career in journalism, a long career in storytelling, right? That's kind of a given. But at what point in your career did you re- did it click for you? When did you realize that journalism and storytelling was really what you were particularly good at and what what motivated you and moved you in a way that other things didn't? Well, I don't know if anything like ever, if there was a click. I mean, I, like I said, I went to Berkeley. I ran the, I was managing editor of the Daily Cal. I came to Washington. I co-wrote a book, not to date myself, but I co-wrote a book on the Reagan administration called Reagan's Ruling Class. Uh, I was 22 years old and my co-author and I were interviewing everybody from Defense Secretary Casper Weinberger on down. Um, the CIA director, William Casey. I mean, we were able to get extraordinary interviews um, back then. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a Washington Post bestseller. It got a lot of attention in Washington. And yeah, we loved, I loved doing that. Um, I took that on to the LA Times where I covered Hollywood and interviewed people like Betty Davis and Meryl Streep. And that was, those were extraordinary stories, of course. And then I was at the um, L.A. Times Sunday Magazine, where similarly I, I went back towards politics, which is my first love, and did a lot of um, you know, interviewing and obviously and, and profiles for the L.A. Times Sunday Magazine. And out of that grew my book on the rise of the baby boomer conservative movement. Gang of and Five. Gang of Five. And what I did was rather than just do a, story, a book, you know, a straight book, I did narrative stories. I built it around key players uh, in the movement, people who came onto campus in the 1970s rebelling against the liberal culture there, came to Washington with Reagan in the 80s, and of course spent most of the time uh, fighting the mainstream Republican Party because they were kind of activists at the time. And then in the 90s, um, you know, spent their time 
fighting the Clinton years and the Clinton administration. So, but I told the story of the rise of this movement through five central characters and their interwoven lives. So I've always, I've always kind of geared toward telling people's stories in the context of policy and in the context of history, because that, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. I've always believed that presidents, for example, rise or fall on their personal character, on their characteristics, not on their ideology. And I think we've seen that in recent years, you know, predating this president. It's it's really a lot about who they are is what affects their presidency. Mm-hmm. It's fair to say this book had a big impact, writing this book, uh, Gang of Five, had a big impact on your view of the world and your personal ideology. How, how did that come about? How, what, what was it about the experience of writing this particular book that impacted you? Well, I graduated um, Berkeley like and was a, a good lefty, um, journalist, but a lefty. And, um, and I, first of all, with a personal experience and then through my reporting, drifted to become more conservative, free market person. And my first experience, frankly, was in my 20s when I was a big sister to a young woman, well, young girl. She was 13 years old. Um, she was uh, from inner city D.C. Like a, like a mentorship type. Yeah, it was a mentor sister. to her. And uh, she wanted to get pregnant at age 13. She didn't have a boyfriend or anything. She wanted to get pregnant because all her friends were pregnant and, you know, or had had abortions. And... It was clear to me at the time, this was in the in the 80s, that the welfare system was was promoting this, and that if you if you were a 13 year old girl and and you were thinking like a 13 year old girl, wow, you get a welfare check, I get to move out of mom's house, so I can't stand right now and you know have a baby. I mean, it's a very kind of immature reaction, and that really made me understand the. Um, how detrimental our welfare system had been. And it, of course, it was under Bill Clinton that we reformed welfare. And it was a, it was a really, I, I believe, a great moment in time. With when, a Republican. With Congress. a Republican. Yeah, yeah. Republicans yeah. And, and Democrats came together and reformed welfare. And, and Clinton ran on the, the theme, end welfare as we know it. So that combined with, I did a, a, a story for the LA Times on the foster care system and how that was creating um, basically homeless kids who graduated out of the foster care system at, at age 17. And then um, Gang of Five, I was exposed to a lot of conservative ideas um, about uh, why affirmative action isn't necessarily the right way to go and um, how the free market can be a lot better than the government in basically getting things done. Um, so I, I became far more of a Kind of conservative and independent thinker, though. I mean, I, I was on Fox News as a commentator for ooh, more than a dozen years on uh, on the the primetime shows. I got I was able to have a seat at every single presidential camp uh, convention, every single election night, every single you know State of the Union message. It was very exciting time. And I was viewed, even though Fox had a reputation as being conservative, I was always viewed as, as somebody with an independent voice. So I, I used my independent voice there to um, just to, to um, try to drill deeper on issues. Uh, but it was it was a great that was a great experience. So Nina, shifting gears a bit because you know we're talking about 
personal development, leadership development. You've, you've had uh, an incredible career. You've been exposed to amazing leaders, women and men. You've also had great mentors. With the focus on the Me Too movement, there were some awful, awful things that happened. Lots of awful things happened to a lot of, of people. Um, but you and I have talked a little bit about this. How, what, what do you think the aftermath of this movement looks like? And what advice do you have for young women as they set out on their careers looking for mentors, sponsors, guides. Those people should be women and men. What advice do you have for well, them? Well, I think you put your finger on it. I mean, this it's been a tremendous moment in our history where bad guys have been outed. And absolutely, it, it's good that they've been outed and that they, they've, they're paying the price. That said, I think we've created a very black and white um, imagery right now about male-female relations in the workplace. And it, I hope this whole conversation, this national conversation, will recalibrate. Because at the end of the day, all of my mentors were men. And we didn't use the term mentor. Nobody, Everybody talks about mentors. I didn't have a mentor. I mean, but I did have, I had great editors along the way. The editor of the Los Angeles Times, Shelby Coffey, John Lindsay was one of my great editors, Peter Canellis um, at the Boston Globe. These were people who were thinkers and smart and interesting, and they made me make my writing better. Um, you know, on television, I Chris, I consider Chris Wallace and Britt Hume are people that pushed me to think harder mm-hmm. and to um, just to be better. It wasn't always easy. You felt like you were on the spot because they're challenging you, but they made me get better. And I, I think young women today need to look to people that will make you be better, that will make you perform better, that will make you just take it to the next step. And if somebody acts inappropriately, then call them on it. But don't assume that all men are potentially going to hurt you or you're tough stand up for it we're not we're not shrinking violets I think we're all in I think we need to take I have a daughter as do you right I think we should be teaching our daughters to stand up for themselves and not to run away from men in the workplace but to look for the the great ones who will help you with your own greatness Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's great advice really great advice so you touched on something I want to double back on a little bit you talked about having all of these amazing mentors. And I'm assuming part of what made them amazing is that they were willing to give you feedback. Feedback for a lot of people, women yeah. in particular, can be hard to hear. We sometimes will hold ourselves to a standard of perfection, and then when someone gives us feedback, we're like, ouch, that really hurts. Oh, right. I'm not perfect, by the way, right? None of us are perfect. Right. But how, how, what advice do you have for young women on learning to receive feedback. Oh, that's interesting, Laura, because I think you put your finger on it in some way because it's possible that women are more thin-skinned about um, feedback than men. And I happen to be in a profession where it's all about feedback because your pieces are edited and you, you are forced to rewrite your stories. And let me tell you, I shed a lot of tears. It wasn't easy um, on... Uh, there are times when I was on um, television and got off and just I just was you know really 
feeling down because I didn't perform. I didn't have the answers. I didn't. And that forced me to go make sure I had every answer to every potential question that was going to come up about North Korea or Syria or whatever the issue was. It forced me to be better next time. And that's where feedback is really important. You have to be, you have to be willing to accept it. And it's not about, you have to remember, it's not about you. It's about the work. And even, and when you're on television in particular, it seems like it's about you because you're the one sitting there talking, but it's really not. It's about the work. It's, it's about your knowledge of the facts. It's about the argument you're making. It's about whether you've made that argument in the crispest, most efficient man, manner. Um, and, and that's what trains you. Feedback is what trains you to take it to the next level. You know, and I think what you just said is so interesting. It, it's really a skill to for many of us. It's a skill to learn how to hear feedback. You were always in you know, you were in a career and in jobs that feedback was required. It was essential. That was a component of it. Frankly, every career, every job that you're in, feedback should be essential, but it was especially so in what you were doing. And so it was something that you learned how to do very early on. You learned how to develop that thicker skin. You learned not to fully internalize when somebody said that you can do better and here's how you can do better. And I think we see that in um, when Patty and I in our company, we just, you know, we edit our stuff back and forth all the time. We're editing, you know, memos and scripts and, uh, you know, proposals. And, you know, Patty will tear my stuff up. I'll tear her stuff up. We rewrite and we don't even think twice about it because that's what we've been trained to do. This is a bit of a self-serving question. What's your advice for doing the best interview, whether you're going into a job interview, being interviewed, doing an interview, or hosting a podcast, as the case may be? What's um, your yes. best advice for... Um, follow Laura's <laughs> footsteps. Uh, I There's two things. One is preparation. So I always, I always do pre-interviews if it's possible, and I always um, research very much in depth that whoever I'm going to be interviewing um so I would say preparation is number one and the second thing is listening don't just have a list of questions and you know just throw them at the person I was actually counseling uh talking to a big group of uh women several weeks ago and we're talking about storytelling just in terms of as it relates to your parents or grandparents if you want to get their story on tape or don't just sit there and read off a list of questions listen to what they say and then pull the string I can't tell I did this um interview with my dad for an hour and a half interview and I pulled the thread and learned the most amazing things about my dad because I listened things you didn't know things I didn't know about how he was his I knew his mom was an alcoholic but the you know his parents would like leave him home alone when he was five years old four and five years old and how scary and awful that was where they'd go off partying and leave him alone um you know how he'd go on trains by himself at age six and how scary that was I just learned so much about my dad that explains how he deals with family issues now and so but I wouldn't have done that if I just you know, been been asking from a list of questions. You need to really listen to people. Mm-hmm. Where does confidence come from for you? Confidence can be very elusive. 
for people. But for most people, you have, there's something that gives you that sort of strength and courage to put one foot in front of the other and keep going. Where, where does it come from for you? I think for me, it becomes, it's funny, I think it just comes from intellect, to be honest. I just, I read a lot. I, um, I write. I don't get inside myself. Um, I'm, and I, I always encourage young women, read. Um, because if I if I worry about me and how I'm doing or just I, I find a lot of young women too self-involved and I think you have to like get out of yourself and be reading things and be like engaged in the national conversation or whatever conversation it is whether it's about business or politics and I think that gets you if you're if you're thinking about that, you're not thinking about yourself, and then you like sort of automatically um, more confident. Mm-hmm. It's sort of just doing it, being There's interested, also, right? just being interested you're, in the world. You're interested, in I the guess. World. I guess that's a way to put it. More yeah. than it, just like being interested. If you're interested in the world, you're less focused on yourself, and you're a little more confident. That said, I think the the imposter syndrome that women talk about is real. I um, interviewed a woman who's a head of a college, and she's very prominent. She's very involved in STEM issues. And she says, um, she, and she's 65 years old, she suffers from, as she calls it, imposter syndrome, and it's gotten worse, <laughs> she says, as she gets older. <laughs> and that's and I've had those moments, too. I'm not yeah. like, totally confident at all. I've definitely felt that. But um, a lot of it is... You know, you get past it by getting outside of yourself, thinking outside of yourself, and also just doing it. Mm-hmm. Do it. This notion of imposter syndrome so far has come up in every single interview that we've done on this podcast. I know you've interviewed Christine Lagarde. She's talked about imposter syndrome. It's a very real thing. And you said something really interesting that for you and for a lot of people, it gets worse with age. I, that's so fascinating because I completely I agree with you. Um, why do you think that is? People like you and I tend to shoot high, and of course you're never going to get all the way up there because you're like you, you're you're just shooting so high. So that's, and I actually um, I'll give this exercise to your um, listeners, which this college president um, gave to me. We all have to do lists as women, right? Put away the to do list and take out your have done list. Mm-hmm. Write down three things that you've done just in 2018 that you're proud of and read it start focusing on have done and that'll give you more we're always moving to the next thing we need to we need to think more about our have done lists and not just focusing on the to-do list because the to-do list all it does is grow and evolve and it, it never goes away but the have done list will actually feed your confidence nina thank you This was terrific, really terrific. Thanks, Laura. It was great to be here. You can find out more about Nina via our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to She Said, She Said Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks for listening. 